just saying, life is short. I'm in Hollywood, I'm finding out most of the shit in Hollywood ain't even real. Some things are real, but some shit ain't real. I met DMX, and he really talked like that. We in the restaurant, hey, yo, bitch. Let me get some water and some lemon. We're in a restaurant. Don't nobody holler like that at a restaurant. Well, shit in school. Couldn't cheat at all. Yeah. Hey, bitch. What's the answer to number seven? <laughs> we walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior. I can say... Drinking violence in movies higher levels of aggression and violent behavior. Recognizing that many children love violent movies. So motherfuckers are always trying to escape. Take a look around! Dodge this. There go the gun click. 911 shit. All over some dumb shit. Ain't that some shit. My name is Sean Campion, and you are listening to Take a Look Around, the podcast at the intersection of new metal and Hollywood. And on this gravely solemn day, I am joined by the rough rider himself, Alistair D-Man Bates. <laughs> Dark Man Bates. How are you, Batesy? Uh, man, I'm, um, I'm getting through it, dude. When X gave it to us, it turns out he gave us something to mourn and a historical body of work that we are looking forward to diving into yeah absolutely i guess you could say this podcast is at the uh x of uh new metal and cinema but today we're kind of doing something a little bit different and making it the x of uh uh, <laughs> that was pretty smoothly done uh, <laughs> <laughs> how about this we're at the x of new metal and cinema and if you like that hit the dms there we go <laughs> swish beautiful as our listeners are no doubt aware one earl simmons uh, aka dmx has passed away he suffered a heart attack and after a week his family made the decision to uh turn off his life support now dmx is a big figure in the world of new metal cinema and new metal uh, we have covered his star-making turn in Cradle, Cradle to, the to the Grave, Grave. with Jet Lee on our season one episode. It, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's it's such. I think at the time, Al, we called it the ultimate expression of new metal cinema that we'd seen so far. Cross-cutting between DMX on a. ATV <laughs> being chased right. by the cops to X gonna give it to you yeah. while Jet Lee fought UFC stars in an illegal cage match That's with right. Anthony Anderson. That's right. It was the most new metal cinema thing we'd seen to date. The morning of recording this episode, I met with a friend of the show, Dita Smith, who was convinced that we had already done one of the films that we were gonna cover today, and it it made me realize how many movies that we've done that I have just forgotten that we've watched. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgot that we did Cradle to the Grave because for like a good maybe two minutes, I was like, oh, fuck, have we done Romeo Must Die? Which 
I, I'm jumping ahead. Today we're going to talk about three films, kind of real briefly. We're going to talk about 1998's Belly, 2001's Exit Wounds, and 2000's Romeo Must Die. But first, let's let's give a little bit of a, a talk about DMX, the man himself. We covered a bit of him on the Cradle to the Grave episode, but I think it's important to really look at DMX, the man, and where he fits into the new metal canon. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yo, get it twisted, this rap shit is mine, motherfuckers, a fucking game, fuck what you heard, it's what you hearing, it's what you hearing, listen, it's what you hearing, listen, it's what you hearing, listen. So, I mean, as... Many people have kind of brought up in a lot of his obituaries. The man had a truly tragic upbringing. His youth was marred by some pretty horrific domestic violence from uh, his mother. His father was not in the picture. Uh, as a kid, uh, young Earl was in and out of group homes. At points, he was homeless. Whilst he was living in uh, group homes, it was you know, hip-hop that kind of saved him. He, he Around this time, he had some other horrific incidences that kind of saw him locked up in juvenile prison where uh, there's quite a insane story about him breaking out in the middle of a blizzard and almost oh, freezing yeah. to death. Wandering home to where his family was. Who only just, just fucking wailed on him. It's truly, you know, not to bring the mood down, but it, it, it is a... The epitome of a pretty tragic story. As he started pick up with rap, his his manager at the time, DMX was, you know, he never drank, he never did drugs up until this point where he started smoking weed with his manager and DJ. And it was around this time that uh, a lot of his mental health issues kind of started to come to the surface because it... They were really exacerbated, weren't they? Really exacerbated because... The weed he was smoking was, in fact, laced with crack cocaine and PCP, which really set him on this self-destructive path. He was very explicit and open about in his music. He came around on Def Jam at the same time as Jay-Z, and it's kind of, you know, it's kind of well known that Jay-Z considered DMX you know, his only legitimate competitor. There's a story uh, from the Source magazine, an interview with Ja Rule, where I think it was the three of them were at this club just as their stars were rising, and Ja Rule and Jay-Z were allegedly just fucking terrified of DMX, just for the fact that whilst he was at this club, all DMX did was just bark. And I think this is probably when he was... (laughs) Yeah, 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 it's fucking insane. Like, uh, yeah, apparently, I don't think our man was doing too well at this point. Uh, It's also really important to, you know, contextualize the importance of DMX's music. That's really what I wanted to talk about, yeah, for sure, was that DMX's star came on the rise around the time of, around exactly three years after the deaths of Biggie and Tupac, and we had exited this early Death Row Records, uh, 
East Coast versus West Coast era of gangster rap hip hop. Mm. The Wu Tang Clan had risen, but were, you know, yet to capitalize on a lot of that. And we'd entered what would be kind of the shiny yeah, suits exactly. era of of hip-hop the like influence of r&b the idea of dmx was this hard edge throwback to the the early 90s late 80s of hip-hop that Mm. was you know had really won the hearts and minds of a of a mainstream audience and he he was massively influential on top of that his like deep gravelly voice and the fact that he had made no bones about his like interest and desire to work with the up and coming new metal scene. Yeah. Marilyn Manson was on his first album. Yeah. He contributed that famous guest verse on Roland. DMX is, I think, the only rapper still to this point whose five big albums debuted at number one. No other artist has had that in billboard history his influence on hip-hop as well is just it's it's unquestionable i mean kanye west for uh for example is i miss that dmx type beat that's it man. danny brown going out and saying his two biggest influences with jonathan davis and corn and dmx yeah exactly like it is a real story man real like, tragic loss and, and what what was also really uncommon about DMX as well that was this vulnerability, despite his whole shtick of uh, being the fucking hardest dude in the whole fucking world. Like, he was just brutally honest and to a fault, man. There, There's the classic story uh, about how uh, when he released the single What These Bitches Want, uh, there's literally a part where he lists all the women he was having sex with and once that single came out, his wife left him the next day because she was like, Oof. uh, what? <laughs> On top of that, like, he's no stranger to issues with homophobia, transphobia in his lyrics. The man, I, we, we can only, you know, stretch the, the mental illness and the upbringing so far. He, he had some controversial lyrics. Yeah, look, none of that stuff comes out in the wash, but, um... I mean, it is important to talk about how, like, the man talked about mental health in rap music fucking years before anybody else did it. Uh, it's 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 just a sad trait. And, like, the last few years of his life were just marked with some pretty fucking hot, like, you know, unfortunately, he, you know, he was hit with some pretty severe legal issues. He did quite a lot of jail time. On top of that, he just struggled with mental health and with uh you know crack cocaine usage uh, up until his death well let's let's not bring the mood down too much because this episode it's it's a comedy podcast and we want to celebrate this man's life like and i think it, it, it's interesting that we can talk about his influence on hip-hop and during this era this 1999 era going forwards and talk about his role in 1998's Belly. Wait, you're not going to look at 
bullets outside, the more blood flows. When I plumb holes with the snub nose, run blow, bullets whistle, wouldn't miss you. Hit you all up in your mouth like you tried to kiss you. Drama, that's right here, how much you need? Beat you down with the gas, see how much you bleed, how much you bleed for your life. You was a killer, and all the bitches coming about that ass, you feel it, getting filler. You got to go, everybody got to go. Uh, so what you gonna do with those? Now, Belly is the first feature film for Hype Williams, the acclaimed music video director behind almost every single film clip of the shiny suit era of hip-hop. He basically invented the style and the sound that DMX was kind of the polar opposite of. Al, when you th- when you hear the name Hype Williams, what springs to mind for you? What what clip jumps out? Fucking The Rain by Missy Elliott. Give me some more. Gold Digger by Kanye yes. West. Snap Your Fingers by Little John. Uh, put your hands where your eyes can see them. Woo-ha, got you all in check. Okay. <laughs> G- give me some more of the, the Busta Rhymes film clip with its, like, deranged Tex Avery style Rocco's modern life uh fisheye lenses I think is just truly haunting yeah I would have seen that at age like seven or eight and I I watched it earlier today and like started to sweat it was so scary to watch oh totally but I mean Hype Williams pop visuals just wouldn't exist without him. Like he, yeah, he literally really directed elevated the medium. every fucking rap video from like 1992 till about fucking 2013. Like, I mean, his most recent huge music video, I would say, is like fucking "Stupid Ho" by Nicki Minaj or uh, the "Runaway" clip. Kanye, for Kanye West, West exactly that was debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess a few more notables as well. Uh, TLC, no scrubs. He he really was the the look of a generation of hip hop. Yeah. The same way that Run DMC or NWA were able to present a look, Hype Williams, without even so much as releasing a song, invented the style. Yeah. Of a generation that's it. Of but hip-hop. like on top of that, he's such an idiosyncratic director that even though his films. All of his film clips are so different. Like, you know it's a Hype Williams film clip. Like, it, it's... Yeah. It, if someone is screaming into a fisheye <laughs> lens... Yeah. <laughs> ...then it's Hype Williams, baby. Now, I had never seen Belly before. I was well aware of its, like, legacy as Hype Williams's only feature film and the first starring role for both rapper Nas and DMX, and I know that it was critically lambasted for years before kind of entering a resurgence in the 2010s, and holy fucking shit, I was not prepared for how good this was, Al. Yeah, it's, Belly is a stunning-looking film. It's fantastic. It's just two young drug dealers trying to, like, make it in the game. The plot is entirely superfluous. Tommy... DMX's character is this man who's just trying his hardest to be the best in the game, whilst Nas, Nas's character, Sincere, is, he has foresight and is kind of 
understanding that maybe his time as a, a drug dealing kingpin figure is maybe just not, not a, a sustainable yeah yeah exactly and you know he, he he has these plans to go to africa with his family and there is kind of a one final job where uh tommy uh he gets linked in with ox he's a wealthy jamaican drug lord and tommy goes over to jamaica to help out Ox with some criminal enterprises and the scenes in Jamaica where they're at the dance halls are some of the most fucking phenomenal pieces of cinematography ever like there's just these amazing shots from the crowd watching these artists perform on stage it's all shot from people's like shins and knees yeah. like looking up like a child running un through the underbelly of this like criminal enterprise it i was not prepared for how beautiful this film would look i saw a letterboxd review that called it the suspiria of 90s hood movies yeah oh that's that's a great description that is exactly what you're getting in for this is uh, like a bit of trivia about the film the film cost seven million dollars to make which is positively shoestring budget mm. it's nothing and hype williams as a first time director spent three million of those dollars on the first five minutes of this of the film in which a diamond heist plays out entirely to a strobe light at new york city's famous the tunnel nightclub and then was forced to shoot the rest of the film with the remaining four million <laughs> some of the houses throughout the film that incredible black and white house where uh, yeah, the crew watch go gummo. to watch <laughs> watch harmony kareen's gummo after the diamond heist I should roll kid that's dmx's house in florida that's so crazy um and, and this is like this film as well it has just so many amazing like like other supporting cast like t-buzz from tlc method man from the wu-tang clan uh you know the the getaway driver when method man is shot at the strip club is an uncredited ghostface killer oh that's awesome i didn't see him uh louis rankin plays ox who louis rankin is a very influential dancehall artist from the 80s fucking az is uh nasa's barber it is the quintessential 90s hip-hop film as you said the plot is sort of superfluous but it it is kind of this story about Tommy DMX's character, it is kind of in some ways a, a, a kind of a tale of redemption for him. He he's led into a, a a chance to change his life either by betraying his people to the FBI or converting to the Nation of Islam, and I mean, DMX is just on display. His role was originally written for Jay Z. But the production companies felt that Jay-Z wasn't a big enough star to carry the leading role. 
Which is crazy, right? <laughs> I know. To think about how big Jay-Z like, would get in the years after 1998. It'd be like, oh, I don't know, like Brad Pitt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and DMX had been trying to break into cinema and he fought for this role so hard and had to convince Hype Williams to put him on. And he just acts rings around Nas. Exactly right. It's such a... Any of the, like, professional actors working around him, he has just got this incredible naturalistic performance from a man that has lived the character he's playing. Absolutely, man. And that's it. Like, I feel like in the movies we're going to talk about, like, you know, maybe DMX isn't the best actor in those movies, but just due to how fucking bad Narciss is an actor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like Marlon Brando versing Taylor Kitsch or something. Or, you know, like, yeah, uh, and the Kitsch man comes out on yeah, top. Yeah, baby. <laughs> John Carter and Mars, we're yeah, here for you. Rule. you sh- <laughs> uh, I, I love Bailey. Like, I, I was really hoping that that Superfly remake in 2017 was going to be the spiritual successor to Bailey. And that is maybe one of the worst movies I've watched in the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> I think if there's any movie that's a spiritual successor to Bailey, it would be 2006's Miami Vice uh, yep, film okay. adaptation I by Michael Mann. Totally. Another kind of music video influence disjointed chronology tale of redemption between two people that are struggling with the lives they've chosen for themselves in a mm. endlessly competing cycle of crime. I would love to watch the two of them back to back. And and you know what's another film I kind of think of as well? Only God Forgives. Yes. Yeah. I'd love to give that a rewatch. I remember being like, uh, this is a so drive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it it's great, man. It it it's so good. It, uh it, and it, it and it is the kind of similar film where the plot is sort of superfluous. It's just these amazing visuals with some kind of loose plot about redemption and it it's and greed and the corrupting the corrupting powers of money. It's and like on top of that, the soundtrack for Belly is sensational. Like that whole opening scene where uh, Salt of Souls back to life is oh like, that acapella with Hella just slow to a purely just oh torpid level. Oh. oh, it's so cool, man! And Devil's Pie by D'Angelo, like a really early version of that song. Uh, not even the version that appears on his seminal album Voodoo. Like, like I'm t- like I'm getting goose pimples talking about how great that soundtrack is. It's. It- Do you say goose pimples? I say goose bumps. Yeah, yeah, Goosebumps makes me think of the books too much. And that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go have a lie down. <laughs> Look, I think corrupting power of money is as good a time as any to move on to the next film in the DMX sure. chronology. <laughs> which is 2000's Romeo Must Die. In a city ruled by criminals... Two families have forgotten their fear of the law, but he will make them remember. 
producer of The Matrix, Jet Li. Romeo must die. Al, you had a good little story about Romeo must die to kick us off. <laughs> That's right. So, a uh, friend of the show, Dita Smith, who I mentioned earlier, we, we watched Belly this morning, and as I asked, would you like to watch Romeo Must Die, his instant response was, Dita must leave. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pretty good story about it as well. As a kid, uh, my mum had come home from the video store. She had recently watched Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, because she's a big Claire Danes fan, and been really impressed by the film and had read that there was another recent uh, modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet that she should check out. And she brought home Romeo Must Die. I was so incredibly excited to see this because my mum had just brought home a Jet Li (laughs) action movie for me to watch. And then within the first 15 seconds of the credits rolling, we get the character of Poe hanging out in that nightclub, uh, watching the two women suck on each other's nipples. And I have never been more mortified in my life as my mom just stood up and we didn't, we lost the remote. So I will never forget how slowly she got up to walk to the TV to turn it off. I had never seen this film before. I, in my head, always thought that DMX was like the third, the third lead. lead. <laughs> he is in this film for all of for fucking... fifteen seconds, <laughs> <laughs> and he's like cast so like so highly. Like it's literally like Jet Li, Aaliyah, Isaiah Washington. DMX, Delroy Lindo. Delroy Lindo is probably in this movie more than Jet Li and DMX. <laughs> I think it's um it's interesting as a film that this is a film people have rose tinted glasses for. Uh, why? I know <laughs> uh, I know a lot of girls I know when I told them that I was planning to do this episode. Uh, or that we were planning to cover a DMX, they're like, oh, you've got to do Romeo Must Die. Even mentioning the like the plot of this podcast, like people mm. are like, when are you going to get to Romeo Must Die? Do you guys remember this movie? I, I think <laughs> like, a lot I of... think just people just love Aaliyah. And she yeah, is that's it, right. the that's... most new metal star there is. We covered <laughs> her right. for Queen of the Damned on our very first episode. <laughs> and we will probably cover her again for Queen of the Damned for some kind of... Uh, <laughs> well, you guys will find out. But uh... <laughs> Yeah, we got a special project cooking, ladies and gentlemen. This is hardly also Romeo and Juliet. Instead of the Capulets and Montagues, it's Chinese Americans versus African Americans. Like that's that's it. There's like what what forbidden love is there in this film as well? There there's no. Do they even kiss at any point? Well, it's funny you mention that. So basically, the setup for the film is that. Uh, after the death of his brother, Jet Li's character escapes from prison in Hong Kong to investigate a rival war between African-American and Chinese-American gangs in San Francisco, only to disco- uh, get mixed up with a liar whose brother 
has been killed in the same battle. So we get kind of this, like, hint at an idea of a will they or won't they? But there is zero chemistry between them. Like, it is... This is one of the most asexual films I have ever seen. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I... I... Half the film, she calls him Akbar because he was. Oh yeah, that's right. Because he, she first met him when he was stealing a taxi cab. There is so much racism in this film, like Anthony Anderson's character, like is just (laughs) ludicrously racist towards Chinese Americans. Yeah, there's like, like. The only time I've heard slurs like that is in fucking Gran Torino, where it's just like, oh, this is stuff that Korean War veterans would say. Yeah, it's like, like 40s-style <laughs> racism. <laughs> um, the- fuck, man, I, I, I really... It's not that I hated or disliked this movie. It, 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 and I, uh, I don't... I I I was I don't drink so I'm not hungover. I have quit pretty much everything else so I wasn't like, you know, cooked. But somehow like this whole fucking thing like I did not know what was happening. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't like focus on any point of this film. Like there was I just don't know what it it just did not grab me in any way. I had a cup of coffee in front of me. I was you know, like I was actively watching and even then i really am struggling to remember anything except delroy lindo at the end gets shot and shakes the hand of jet lee for some reason i I, I get breaking out of prison it's a remarkably drab movie there are like this would be the the second collaboration between uh the director who was the cinematographer for Jet Li's big Western debut in Lethal Weapon 4. This would be Mm. Aliyah's debut acting role in her only film released while she was still alive. Uh, And so there was a lot riding on this. This was a a big deal film. Mm. But it... So I... Also, it comes with uh, Joel Silver who had just come off... This was his first film after the first Matrix film. So there was lots Mm. riding on this film to be a big deal. And it has all of the, you know, character of a... I don't know, like a cardboard cutout. There's just nothing to grab hold of in this film, isn't there? I think the big thing about this film is that it had a soundtrack album, like an original soundtrack album that was a compilation album produced by Timberland that uh, it sold, in the, within the year of its release, it sold over roughly about 2 million, copy, uh, 2 million copies. It had Alia's big single, Try Again, on it, as well as Come Back in One Piece. Yeah. I, that's a great... So, like, is that why people love this film because I think try this, again was I, the i've been the, reading over reviews i've been talking to friends this was a big sleepover movie for a lot of people growing sure. up like a lot of people watch this in their youth the same way they watch queen of the damned uh it had jet lee yeah, for the fellas totally. Aaliyah for the girls it was a it was a nice easy choice for families to make i'd say yeah that's true there's no like 
extreme violence and the any extreme violence it does have is marred by this incredibly new metal video game style of uh anytime a bone breaks it turns into cgi oh yeah that X-ray, was pretty cool actually which i could tell <laughs> joel silver like just hoovering up a line of coke to the director being like 10 years from now every film will be doing this <laughs> we gotta have the x-ray vision baby because he would be in the next two films of uh joel silver and anders bartok exit wounds which we'll talk about and cradle to the grave i feel like this was really them testing the waters for him or they had yeah uh, maybe they wanted him for isaiah washington but they didn't have a chance to really get him involved just yet like he he's probably for the he plays a, a nightclub owner who has one cool line guns don't kill people people kill people and then gets killed by a gun <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's all I remembered him doing in this film is literally at one point he looks over a mezzanine and is like, everybody, keep it down in my nightclub. Yeah, (laughs) how funny is the nightclub? There are some hilarious sets in this. Aaliyah's clothing store has a DJ in what amounts to be a one-bedroom apartment. The, The nightclub slash gambling den looks like maybe like the back lot of a film set there's like mm. <laughs> clearly pas in the background who are making up like some of the the background the craft extras. service table is uh they didn't even yeah yeah it's... the um oh. the film itself is interesting in that it would be Aaliyah's only film released during her time on this earth dmx has unfortunately left us jet lee is uh, struggling quite hard with hyperthyroidism. Uh, and Isaiah Washington is one of the most cancelled men in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, like, he really pioneered the, 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 the way, the road for cancellations. He really, he really knocked down walls for other cancelled motherfuckers <laughs> to walk through. And he gets really the only bit in this film that ties it back to Romeo and Juliet when he calls Jet Li Romeo half a second before he gets killed. I was like, oh, hold on a second. This is Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, but at the end of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet also die. That didn't happen. Yeah. You mentioned do they even kiss in this film? Uh, apparently, there was, during that final sequence... Uh, two versions shot of the film, in which, one of which, uh, the the f- version we got, in which they embrace and walk away, the second of which, in which they kiss, which was left in original test screenings, but test screenings erupted at the idea of an Asian man kissing uh, an African-American woman, and it was promptly just removed from it. It's, it's, it's criminal, to be honest. So weird. Did you know that, that uh, Stephen Yoon's character in The Walking Dead, I think in 2015, got the first kiss for an Asian man with a, a white woman on primetime TV, I'm pretty sure? That's fucking really weird. That's extremely weird, isn't it? To quote the great Bob Marley, racism is schism, and that's on a serious tip. <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, and... That's where we can segue into exit wounds. In the city's most corrupt precinct, how long you survive, kill 
depends on who you can trust. I need backup. Promise that would always be my brother's keeper. I keep my promises. Exit wounds. This film is not yet rated. Starts March 16. Uh, I did not get a chance to watch as we quickly cobbled this uh, special together. So you are going to have to <laughs> tell me. Uh, you sent me a message ten minutes into the film. Not even that. Like, ten seconds into the ever. film, <laughs> saying this is the best movie ever because Steven Seagal, like, eyed off a guy's ear ear piercing in slow motion for what felt like four hundred minutes. <laughs> this yeah, film fuck. just descends into nothingness from that. <gasps> Uh, and that's Exit Wounds, ladies so, and gentlemen. <laughs> so basically, Exit Wounds is the second collaboration between DMX and the director, whose name is... Uh, was it Andre Bartislav or Barkiawi or something? Barkowak, I want to say. It's, yeah. Your guess is as good as mine. If you're uh, <laughs> one of our fans in Poland, you know... Uh, you just got one free month of the Patreon. <laughs> yeah, this would be uh their second collaboration. Returning for this one as well would be Anthony Anderson, and uh, it was uh, and Joel Silver as producer. They, uh, I'm gonna drop a clip here where Joel Silver and Steven Seagal try to cobble together, explaining to you what this relentless idiotic cash grab of a movie even is it's a kind of a cross demographic blending and that it's a tough urban movie the same thing about steven he does have a strong urban following and we thought to add the hip-hop music and add dmx as well would be just an interesting way to combine all this together with the recent incidents we've had with police corruption police brutality the thought of the police policing the police that not all cops are bad cops, but that there are indeed bad cops. So basically, this is a continuation of the themes that they started in Romeo Must Die and would uh, kind of culminate and get right for once in Cradle to the Grave and attempt at combining kind of the martial arts John Woo film with an, uh, as Joel Silver calls, an urban hip-hop flavor. DMX plays a drug dealer who has to team up with good cop in a sea of bad cops, Steven Seagal, to fight corrupt cops. So, I don't know, like... A good man who's a criminal has to fight bad cops who are good? Your guess is as good as mine. I did not finish this film. I got an hour into the two hours of it. It is a slog. Al, what do you think of Steven Seagal movie? I mean, some of them are funny. Like I, I They are do... terrible. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, like, the Under Siege movies rock and... Uh, what's the one where he says, I'm going to take you to the blank, the blood bank, and then breaks the dude's <laughs> arm? <laughs> what is that one? I can't remember, but, uh, no, Steven Seagal sucks. Everyone knows that. Like, I have a real problem with Steven Seagal movies in that I adore your Dolph Lundgrens, your JCVDs, any of the silly, like, straight-to-video films mm. uh, and the action totally. films. But 
I've never been able to vibe with Steven Seagal in that there's never any form of opposition against him. And I recently found oh, out no, yeah. that he has written into his contract he can never lose a fight. Exactly, that's right. The the fucking Vin Diesel clause. Uh, it's I I think what I find hilarious about Steven Seagal is that he has and always will be just a fat blowhard. And I'm not, like, body shaming anybody, but, I mean, he's just, like, he sucks. Like, he just is so polly-wolly crappy. He's, it's like, yeah, he's a, he's a black belt in Taekwondo, and then, like, you have to blow dust off the year that he got the certificate in. <laughs> like, it's like, in 1983! <laughs> Friends of the show... Dita Smith. Oh man, not this guy oh, again! Oh man, not this guy again! And Dylan Bird, Dylan Bird, a, a and Dita Smith, both Patreon subscribers. So, thank you, fellas. I had no idea about this. This is probably the summer of two thousand and eight. They found out about uh, Steven Seagal's blues album, "Song from the Crystal Cavern," and there is two dance hall songs on it. One with influential dance hall uh, artist Lady Saw who is, uh, she kind of broke barriers for a lot of female dancehall artists to talk about sex. Uh, and the song literally has Steven Seagal singing about how me want punani. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to drop, we're gonna gonna drop cool. it right yeah, here. Yeah. We got it, we got it. <laughs> would you really run down Me want the money if you make me feel nice. Why? Tell me where you really want. So, (laughs) enough said about Steven Seagal, the better. Like, DMX's role in this, this is... He's certainly showing some more of the chops that he had on display in Belly. Not quite to the extent Mm. that he would show in Cradle to the Grave, where he has such a phenomenal chemistry with jet lee in that film to like on almost like rush hour level but in this it's like he's got nothing to work with with steven seagal because seagal is giving him nothing to work with and i feel like Mm. it's it's an issue that plagues any of the films that dmx would have after this which would be that no one ever really took a punt on him like uh, yeah. As an actor, that all they need to do is go back and see Belly and see the man he could be. But I mean, this is a guy that around the time that his film career was fading was around the time that his music career was fading because of problems he was making for himself, whether he was in control of that or not. Like, he was struggling as a person. Oh, yeah. And look, as you said, it doesn't atone for a lot of the things he uh, look you can't throw stones in a glass house everyone is walking up their own hill i can't um, i'm perfect just stupid. yeah exactly <laughs> you know i i'm not gonna say he, he's a real piece of shit because he he definitely was a man that had a semblance of trying to redeem his awful behavior but i i would be remiss to not talk about one of our favorite subjects which is dog fighting and dmx uh, certainly went to jail for dog fighting <laughs> several times <laughs> <laughs> subscribers to the take a look around uh 25 and above get uh the 
location texted to them of the next take a look around uh, dogfight. <laughs> dogfight, so, uh, that's right. Something I want to talk about to like wrap this episode up is like kind of some of the cool stories about DMX that have really like come out of the woodwork in like the days since his passing. Like he every people are telling stories on Twitter and on social media about how he came into the Waffle House they worked out and offered to mop the floor because he, you know, like still respects the common man, buying yeah, Girl Scout was, cookies for he, like five hundred dollars worth. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's the other thing. Like The man had passing. seventeen children and they all showed up to his vigil. Like <laughs> Yeah, exactly, right? You can't and, all be and, bad. And he, and he went to jail multiple times for failing to pay child support. And look, on top of that, in his passing, every person who has come forward, celebrity or otherwise, and it really does... I mean, you know, obviously everyone looks fondly on the dead, but it is very overwhelming, the stories of his generosity and by all accounts, his attempts to rectify his wrongs which a lot of people don't ever do in their life let alone people who have made the wrong choices sometimes they just there's a there was this great story about george how there was going to be a charity match where he was going to fight george zimmerman and george zimmerman chickened out at the last minute because dmx said i will do every illegal fucking thing you yeah, can do. He said, I'm going to piss on him. <laughs> I'm going to piss on him. <laughs> I just love the idea of racism being finally solved by DMX breaking the, <laughs> beating the brakes off George Zimmerman. <laughs> like, it just, he punches him so hard, he just explodes into a cloud of blood, and all of a sudden racism just doesn't exist anymore. That's like, how it, George Zimmerman's the final boss, and DMX was, was willing to take him on, Dark Souls style. Uh, and there's like this him at the Albanian wedding just showing up and doing Albanian wedding dances. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so funny. Oh man. The what a um dude. and like we can't stress this is a new metal podcast. Uh we're going to put this all up on the social media, but at the peak of his career in nineteen ninety-nine DMX's performance at Woodstock 99 alongside his new metal oh, contemporaries is one of the standout performances of the festival. And he had 200,000 so cool. white kids just singing along to every word. And when I say every <laughs> word, I mean the word that Al is constantly texting to me. And it's, uh, it's just, it really broke barriers for rap artists in the rock world. They totally, were able man. to get up on stage at rock festivals and uh, like we said before, and shot that shit down. Man. Yes, like we said before, he's and, he he worked with uh, he worked with people like Limp Biscuit with Marilyn Manson. Like he he yeah. had one foot went on the there. Family Values tour with uh, just shit like that, dude. But he very I think one of his last huge fucking performances was in 2016 where he was a surprise guest for DJ Snake. Mm. Uh, and they performed X Gonna Give It To You, uh, Party Up. I can't remember what the third fucking single was. 
And Probably Rough Riders. Business Code. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And Business Coachella, like, this is still the fucking benchmark now for huge music festivals. And once again, it was a similar thing where, you know, half a fucking million people in the middle of the desert, as soon as he walked on stage, went fucking ape shit. Like, th- these are songs that will exist for all eternity. What I want to end on is one of the all-time greatest... Uh, interviews with a celebrity you can read is DMX being interviewed from prison in 2006 about then Democratic nominee hopeful Barack Obama writing to success with Hillary Clinton and (laughs) DMX (laughs) refusing to believe that a black man named Barack Obama was about to become the president of the United States. It is truly hilarious. There's uh, him being introduced to Google in 2013. Like, he just had no idea that the internet worked like that. And and here's another cool thing. Like, he he recorded Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as a single and donated all the proceeds for it to charity. Like, it's wild, man. Like, and I think after that interview... I think we should play his verse from the Rolling Remix, which I I mentioned this on Instagram. When I heard it for the first time as a 10-year-old, I was fucking terrified. (laughs) Like, I had never, ever heard... Like, because he just starts just by screaming and barking. And, like, as a kid, I was just like, Wow, what is this? This is scary! But, fuck, man, it is one of the hardest verses of all fucking time. Uh, damn, dude. What a, what a, what a legacy to leave. What an I, absolute I really... legacy. This has been uh, it... Take a Look Around for DMX. Yes. Yeah, RIPX. X going to give it to you and... X, we're going to carry on your legacy by saying some incredibly problematic stuff. Well, and you then, are. Uh... I'm perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll carry on the uh, legacy of having bipolar and uh, struggling with drugs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks for listening, guys. Back to regular programming next week. I think, what, we're doing... I, I know I usually hate to say what we're doing uh, up ahead, but I think the next episode sean i think it is the funniest episode we have ever recorded so it'll be considerably a lot more upbeat than this one if you haven't seen bailey watch bailey if you have not seen romeo must die you uh i b-man must not watch again is what i will say and if you haven't watched what are your final thoughts uh, (laughs) exit room (laughs) (laughs) it was steven seagal's final ever film released theatrically take away from that what you will (laughs) yeah r.i.p dmx man r.i.p dmx thanks team we'll see you all next week it just don't get no darker than that kid with the parker uh, Or head with the boots who shoots to make a spark Now I'm a fair nigga, but ain't dead nigga quicker uh, than the hair trigger uh, So if you dead nigga, it'll be like your man Trying to hold your brain to your head But you'll be shitting on yourself cause you already dead And at the funeral you won't need a casket uh, I'm leaving just enough of them to uh, stuff uh, in a basket uh, just get the casket, I really need my ass kicked My mom's never let me forget that I'm a bastard what? I ain't never been shit, uh, it ain't gonna be shit uh, That's why I take Whenever I see shit, it's just that D shit. Be short, but do what I wanna do. And that's what I'm gonna do.
the fuck.